You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. happy to give you some takeaways from a report I got this week from Mark Boom, who's a physician leader of the Houston Methodists in Texas. And um, he gave us his assessment of what COVID has meant. And, and basically what we learned from him is it's all good news. Texas is a giant winner among the 10 most populous states for C-19 mortality rates. Uh, Germany, U.S. and Switzerland are the three of the 10 countries with the best ratios of infected to lowest mortality rates, meaning three giant countries that have lots of infections but are doing very, very well with mortality rates. We're way at the bottom of our cohorts. And we came a hair's breadth away from rationing care in Manhattan, but we actually never had to make life and death decisions, meaning who gets this respirator and who doesn't get this medication. So if and when wave two hits, and it will, and next flu season, because we'll we're gonna have a full flu season next go around versus a partial one, we know what to expect and what works. And red and blue voters dramatically have different views of what I'm about to say here. So if you get mad when I'm talking, that'll tell us what you are. But social distancing actually works and masks actually work and shelter in place orders, SIPO, they call it, actually works. And event bans, large events like school entertainment closures, Mardi Gras was a big mistake. We know that works too. And I'm gonna talk more about schools in a second. And then gyms and dining and bar closures. Those were actually turned out to be horrible economic ideas and great public health ideas. So you may or may not agree. You may get mad when you hear that we may have to close schools again. We may have to close your business again. But these five measures apparently eliminated up to 10 to 35 million more infections in America and 300,000 more deaths if you take the death rate out. So maybe as much as even a million more deaths. So this was just published in Health Affairs. What we did not acquire and what no country acquired, including the Nordic countries, including famously Sweden, was herd immunity. So even if we would have opened up our schools, we wouldn't have got herd immunity because mathematically it takes 60 to 80% of a population for us to just get over it. And I'll tell you what else doesn't work, and this is absolutely brain dead people doing this, but when you have a COVID party or you have a spring break and you intentionally are trying to get sick to get over it, quote unquote, really thoughtless and really baseless. That's what we learned today. I'm super excited to introduce to you somebody who is not thoughtless and not baseless. Dr. Marion Mass is a pistol when it comes to speaking her mind. There's not many primary care physicians who openly publish in the Wall Street Journal and the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Washington Times and MedSafe and dozens of other journals to talk about the injustice and the perpetration of what's going on in healthcare today, whether you're a doctor or whether you're a patient, because there's a lot of bigs that are perpetrating. And let's just... If you listen to the show, you know all about that. Dr. Mass works with one of the big children's hospitals in Philadelphia. She graduated magna from Penn State and then went to Duke and then worked on some time on a Cheyenne reservation and did some training there too. So Dr. Mass, welcome to the show. Oh, my great pleasure to be here. 
I got to tell you, I, I've, I've gotten so many takeaways reading your writing. First of all, are you, so you're magna cum laude on, uh, you know, a famous university, but are you persona non grata at most hospitals when you walk in the door? Do they have like a, a, a red, you know, letter painted on your shirt or something? Are you even allowed in places with what you say? I, I don't think so. I mean, you know, um, I, I don't know, maybe a lot of people in high academic places aren't aware of me. I'm not really sure. Are you, have you ever gotten um, pressure or heat because of your views? Uh, well, you mean, do people, I've gotten threats by email. I've had someone try to physically intimidate me right before I, we put on a symposium at the Library of Congress, like get up in my face and record me and um, kind of start yelling at me and asking me <laughs> if I was getting paid to do my work and who was paying me. And it's kind of funny because I don't take any pay for advocacy. I've never taken a dime for it. So you, were you raised on sort of a diet of advocacy because you, you speak for people that don't really want to have a voice? I think, are people worried about losing their jobs and about these Shampier reviews and getting pressured by their hospitals to uh, be quiet and silenced? Because you're not afraid of anybody or anything, it seems like. Oh, uh, I definitely think people are worried about that. And I find, I find a lot of physicians, and justifiably so, they, you know, they can't lose their jobs. I'm very, very fortunate. I, I say blessed, but you know, everyone has their own views on the world and um, philosophy and such. So um, I, I was lucky enough to have a full ride to Duke and um, I had an MD PhD fellowship. I later gave up the PhD part when I fell in love with clinical medicine, but Duke wasn't very expensive at the time I was there. In 1990, tuition was uh, 13,000, 14,000 a year. So I don't, I don't, have these big loans sitting over my head. I think a lot, especially of younger physicians, people that have um, the energy to do this kind of thing and that have years and years in front of them that might want to advocate, you know, I think they are afraid. You know, there's been physicians that, I think the, um, whether you want to call them the cabal, whether you want to call them the, um, the establishment in medicine, whether you want to call them the people, you know, the, uh, administrators, the people who are leading us supposedly, they have this little term they call people who do what I do, disruptive physicians. And I'd actually really like to coin a new term, disruptors of patient care, because we should really be making it about the patients. And there's a lot of disruption going on that's coming from corporate people who are making a lot of money. And when anyone is making a lot of money in medicine, you know, an excessive amount for the value that they're putting in. They're making America pay for that. And I consider that an injustice and I consider that disruption of patient care. So I think we should just recoin the term, but people are definitely afraid of speaking up because of that. So Mary and I, I what movements are you excited about that you think are gaining traction? You know, um, Marty Macri talked in his book, uh, Unaccountable, years ago, that there is basically a transparency movement coming. You also called this many years ago. The transparency was going to be a big movement. Um, hospitals don't like even hearing that word. It makes them shudder because everything changes for them if we now have transparent prices. But um, what what is going to move the dial on transparency once we get past the C-19 uh, pandemic? Public knowledge. Because um, quite frankly, transparency needs to, it, it needs to come Unfortunately, it it needs to come from, I think, some type of law. You know, I actually had a libertarian I was talking to the other day, and you know, the libertarian said, "Well, we shouldn't be 
um, mandating transparency. People should just want to do it. <laughs> I laughed out loud. I LOL'd. I mean, you think these people who are making all this money are just going to say, oh, out of the goodness of my heart, I'm going to become transparent. I'm sorry. I wish it would happen that way, but it won't. Dr. Macri is like, he's totally on that. And uh, I think that transparency movement needs to happen. I'm really proud to say, actually, um, my the physician advocacy group I co-founded with Wes Fisher from Chicago, Dr. Fisher, um, Practicing Physicians of America, when when I helped write a white paper called the Free to Care White Paper, organically, the Free to Care uh, Coalition formed. And the coalition, transparency is one of the big items in that coalition. Um, the coalition is now 8 million citizens and over 70,000 doctors. It's probably way more than 70,000, but who has time to count when you're busy with COVID, right? So uh, all of the groups have grown. And, and what's nice about a coalition is no one's in charge. Essentially, we just agree with the tenants that are behind the ideas in that white paper that I'm honored to have written with a host of other really great reformers. And I'll say as well that Dr. Macri and his group, Restoring Medicine, is part of a coalition and um, another great honor. I, I had I read his book years ago, complete, you know, admired him and was introduced to him by email uh, two years ago, spoke to him. I've met him since. And um, it, I, I just think like, wow, I get to talk to Dr. Macri. This is so cool. <laughs> He's a rock star. He's a hero. I'm just a mom in a bathrobe that writes and, you know, <laughs> like, but um, it, it also shows that you can really get something done if you start having opinions. But so you uh, would suggest to pediatricians who are afraid to advocate, afraid to speak out that you have not suffered really any backlash other than a rude, uh, I don't know if he was a reporter or just a troublemaker, but um, you really have not suffered any professional backlash because you're out there telling the truth. I haven't. I mean, not from, I, I never, you know, my institution, I don't speak for them. They're aware that I advocate. I was actually very open and honest about it. Um, I did an event at the Library of Congress in 2017 when Practicing Physicians of America just opened. That was our opening. Um, we put on a symposium at Library of Congress back then in 2017. And before I did it, I thought, well, I better inform my institution. And they read some of my pieces and they had some complimentary things to say. And you know, they told me, just don't ever speak for our institution. And I, I really, I think that's very fair. I, It's a shame when people can't do the same. Um, I do know of people that maybe spoke out in their in their particular setting and have either lost jobs or were called a disruptive doctor or were referred to a um, health program in their state. And then that's a really hard thing to dig out of. I've heard of the Shampier Review. I don't know anyone personally, I guess, that went through it, but it seems quite unfair to me in America, we're supposed to be uh, innocent until proven guilty, and it doesn't seem like that's always the case with someone who's gone through oh, uh, <laughs> years and years, potentially decades of education. That's crazy. You're, you're a physician, I'm not, but I'm telling you, you do know lots of people who have, have almost gotten in trouble and backed out uh, and did, you know, walked the towed the line. Um, well, so let's talk a little bit about uh, your. Has your practice changed dramatically in post-COVID-19 or are you still seeing the same number of patients? In Texas, we appear to have bounced back in a big way, not in the primary care clinics, but the rest of life seems to be normalizing here in a big way. We're looking at uh, the first week of June, second week of June here, and we're pushing 
normalcy and retail stores were pushing normalcy and, and restaurants. If you, you know, count every other location, uh, table being open normal and masks and gloves, but, uh, are you getting there on the East coast as well? Um, I think we're slower than you are and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. Um, as far as, um, my particular practice of medicine, um, I do pediatric urgent care, all physician led and in, our urgent care numbers have plummeted and our um, hours have been cut and we're really seeing fewer patients. I mean, I, I think at one point we were probably down to 20% of what's normal and now we're sitting at less than half still. And I can actually speak for my husband's a specialist. He's ear, nose and throat, same type of scenario. Things are starting to open up. I do think um, there's a lot of fear out there. And I do encourage people, especially if you have something that needs attending to medically, it's important to get there. As a pediatrician, I'm frightened as well because the patients that I've seen throughout the epidemic, not only were they fearful, but they were fearful for the future. And you know, so when you're when you're meeting a 16-year-old that looks at you and says, Am I ever going to go to college? Can I ever have a girlfriend? I'm feeling kind of hopeless right now. You know, there's, there's a, I think like an overall, we can look at the death rates from COVID and that's very important. It's tragic what's happened. But I think we also have to look holistically at the anxiety, at the depression, um, at potential increases in suicide. There were 44,000 suicides in 2018. Do we want more? I don't. You know, there were 67,000 deaths from the opioid epidemic, and we're hearing from experts that they expect to bounce back from that. And I, I, I don't, I don't think it's just about the economics. I think we have to, we have to look holistically at the whole picture. And and of course, uh, people missing immunizations. There's millions of immunizations that have been missed. You know, then we open back up, and then that's a problem. And there's millions of cancer diagnosis and potential treatments that have been missed too. You know, I've not, I've not seen the recent numbers, but I know the suicide hotlines were up 800% across the country, that the liquor store sales were up 800% across the country. Um, we're not, we're not taking this, you know, in a healthy way, but you talk a lot about, and switching the subject a little bit, uh, physician suicide, we're losing about a million patients worth of doctors every year because of physician suicide. When I was growing up and maybe even you're growing up, dentists were sort of famous as the high, you know, high pressure jobs that, uh, we're checking out. Now it's primarily primary care physicians, but physicians as a whole. Um, what are solutions out there that are going to do something about the, moving the dial on su physician suicide? Yeah, I, this is such an important topic. And I've actually done a few um, panels. There's a, a rather famous film done by, I'm going to give a shout out to Emmy Award winning uh, filmmaker Robin Simon. She's a good friend of mine. Um, and uh, she made the film called Do No Harm, um, brainchild of Dr. Pamela Weibel, a primary care doctor. Uh, Pamela, I think, grew up in New Jersey or New York and is in Oregon and then bounced back to New York. And then they worked with a friend of mine from New Jersey, Dr. Uh, Jill Zeiger, uh, to make this film come to fruition. And I had it brought to Bucks County and I got to pick up Robin and bring her to my house and we ate a beautiful tomato salad lunch on my back porch and then showed this film which was very sobering you asked for solutions and i do like solutions i'm a person of action how about more tomato lunches you know how about more like you know i think we really as physicians and maybe even patients thinking of physicians 
could be just checking in with their physicians. How are you? You know, especially during COVID. It, you know, a lot of people have the choice to say, okay, I'm staying home. I'm fragile. You know, there's some people that have those loans to pay or, you know, they look at their oath that hangs on their wall, like the one behind mine, you know, that Hippocratic oath. And they say, well, I've got to go take care of my patients. And we were sent in to do battle with COVID-19 with very little protective gear. Um, so now I expect, and I think many of us expect, some of the aftermath of COVID will be more physician suicides. Why not, if you are a physician, reach out to someone you know might be suffering or just a friend of yours from medical school. If you can't have lunch with them or you can't get together, you can't do a Zoom conference, which I don't know why you couldn't, but send them a text. Let them know you're thinking about them. I, I just think that human connection is so important. And when you can, get together with someone. We all need to make more times like for coffees, for lunches, you know, for days together, for walks at the lake, bike rides together. I mean, doing mentally healthy things. I just think that that's invaluable. There's so many problems you address in your writing and in your coalition. Um, what is the easiest solution to the most pernicious problem out there where patients are losing or doctors are losing right now? There seems, uh, in my, in my worldview, it's got to come from the market. I'm not a big fan of advocating as you are, because I think a $600 million lobby of light money and another half a billion of dark money is pretty hard to compete with. Um, if you're not voting unanimously for this American hospital association care package, that was a 175 billion in the pockets of the hospitals, you're not going to get reelected, but that was a unanimous vote twice, um, for, for basically billions they didn't need. They already had reserves. Um, what is the, what is the simplest solution for the hardest problem that you're advocating that you think would just be like a no brainer? And why aren't we doing that? Do you have something in mind? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, one of the things that, uh, we, we actually put it front and center in the free to care paper. Um, you know, we talked about transparency and the need for that. So I'm going to let that one go. I think that's actually, that would cover a lot of ground and fix a lot of things. Um, so I would put that number one, but I'm going to give you a number two. And the number two is to make kickbacks illegal again. It's no secret. Now all of America can see that the healthcare supply lines are a problem. Why didn't we have PPE? Why was everything sent over and being manufactured in China? Why? And then of course, then China has a problem and then we have a problem, right? Um, you know, because we, we can't get access to that PPE. Why are drugs so expensive? Why are hospital stays so expensive? And the answer to a lot of that is our supply line. I believe it's 20% of hospital costs come from the supplies that we have. And um, one of the things that I learned about two years ago, and I, I found it absolutely shocking. And I remember when I first heard about the safe harbor for legal kickbacks enjoyed by the people, uh, group purchasing organizations, the um, industry that controls the supply line to hospitals and nursing homes. When I learned that these group purchase organizations who don't make any products, who don't even ship products because they have separate middlemen who do that, who don't do any research, these guys just simply write the contracts for what gets into hospitals and nursing homes. And remarkably, they were granted by our US Congress the right to receive kickbacks and not pay any penalty. I mean, wow. It, that's incredible. Why should they have anything special that no one else has that's completely unjust? 
Yeah, the and best example I've heard of a GPO, Greek purchasing organization, how it works is imagine it's your favorite corner store. If, yeah, let's, talk, let's call it a tea maker, says we want a slot, which means we're going to pay for the right to own, have RT only at your convenience store. And then, so that's year one. Year two, they price it at whatever the heck they want to price it at. And the, and the distributor that makes sure it's placed on those shelves is getting a kickback every time. That's essentially what a group purchasing organization does. They, they find a favorite uh, seller, if you will, let's just call it masks. And then they will make sure that that mask order is getting unanimous um, pur purchasing. Nobody, they're not going to other suppliers. They're not getting a great deal. They're not even negotiating a deal. And they're getting a kickback on it for making the transaction happen. So they're essentially buyer's agents is what they are. Absolutely. Yeah, and you must have been reading um, Vanity Fair. I was quoted by a wonderful author in there, uh, Diana Falzone. Um, she wrote a piece on this and connected it to the masks um, and used the iced tea, you know, uh, analogy. So I, I think I gave her the iced tea analogy and she ran with it. So I'm really glad when you use that. So it makes me happy. Yeah, um, somebody's so reading what you're writing and what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Well, she's writing. She's a fantastic uh, reporter. Um, so yeah, it's exactly like that. And then you ask yourself, like, all right, so imagine if you didn't have group purchasing organizations, which were formed in the early 1920s. The first one was in New York. But if you didn't have them, then what a hospital would have to do would be to look at some online consortium of sellers and pick the, you know, the products that they wanted at the lowest prices. You know, it would seem to me that with the advent of like the way our systems are computerized, that what do you need the group purchasing organization for anyway? And if they're sitting there sucking up, you know, billions every year in kickbacks, and it's it's actually conservatively estimated that between the group purchasing organizations and their pharmaceutical um, counterparts in the outpatient pharmacy arenas, the pharmacy benefit managers, the PBMs, who also have the right to receive kickbacks, uh, you know, the people that are making up the formularies, <laughs> they also have the right to receive money from the manufacturers. So astounding, you know, so like really physicians aren't getting to choose the products they have in hospitals or the products that they're writing for that are covered by insurance. It's all chosen by whoever pays the most to get their product in there. And it's a gigantic perverse incentive. And then what you end up with is what they call a monospony. Um, it's not a monopoly, but it, a monospony means it's a series of monopolies. So now you have like one company that's uh, making the normal saline or a few companies, one company that's making the chemotherapeutic that you need to treat childhood cancers, one company that's making the Pitocin that you need to put women in labor, one company that's making the epinephrine that you need to inject when you have um, anaphylaxis. So when you only have one company, especially for injectable things, um, but for a lot of medications, if anything goes wrong with the manufacturer, then you have to shut everything down and there's no one else to make up the manufacturing. And then the other problem that we get gets to be shortages. And so now besides just having one company that you mentioned could charge what they want, when you have a shortage, then the price goes even higher. So now we have high prices, we have dangerous shortages, and we have money getting sucked out of our systems by people that to me seem to be to amount to a bunch of bookies. You asked early on, um, you know, what things happened to me when I spoke out. This is actually kind of cute, really. Um, the very big, tall man who used to be the head of the Healthcare Supply Chain Association of America, um, and I'll name his name because he's put it in the paper, uh, Todd Ebert, 
Todd has written three letters to the editor. So when I publish a piece um, on group purchasing organizations, he writes in and calls me a conspiracy theorist in the press. He's done it three times in three separate papers. And it's actually kind of um, sort of poor form in his part because every time he writes, he uses the exact same words. But me, I like to be creative and inventive with my writing and change the way that I say it, hoping that it will get across a better way. But yes, three times this man who, I believe I saw his salary once in a 990 and it's much, much heftier than my pediatrician salary. And I don't make anything to advocate, but he makes a lot of money to call me a conspiracy theorist. So you, you figure the score on that one. Well, I'm just speaking on behalf of all the silent that don't speak. Uh, thank you for your voice. Thank you for your fearlessness. Uh, you are a spark plug and a, a void. There are no spark plugs or very few spark plugs. So keep up the good work, keep up the movement and keep up the, uh, let's go from 8 million to whatever that looks like in a year or two or three. Just don't, 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 I hope you're not flagging ever and, and questioning what you do every day. It's important work. You're kind to say, but I have to quickly add that there's, I, I'm trying to grow more of me. I want more people doing this. And there are a lot of physicians now that are like writing pieces, um, speaking out, doing town halls and uh, writing op-eds coming to Congress with me, uh, meeting their own Congress people, meeting their own people that are running for Congress, telling them about this issue. So um, I've sort of self-cloned and I want more people doing this. I don't want to be the only one. And I'm how not. do people find you or how do they reach you, Marianne, if they're trying to get, get in touch? You can find me on LinkedIn. A message on LinkedIn usually works pretty effectively. And I'm, I'm Marianne Mass on LinkedIn. Might be Marianne Mass MD. Um, that's how you found me. Uh, so that's an easy way to do it. I do, uh, you can go through and physicians can join the Practicing Physicians uh, of America. You can join for free. Um, it's, uh, you'll get a couple emails and we, of course, we'd love to have people help out monetarily if they can, but um, I believe it's practicingphysicians.org. So you can find me through that site as well. Uh, and then uh, when you go onto there, you'll see the way that you can find my email um, via that. But uh, LinkedIn is a very effective way. Are you native born of uh, Pennsylvania or are you transplant? <laughs> yeah, I grew up in the little hick town of Hilltown. Well, so. thank you for speaking in English that a Texan can understand. I deeply appreciate you not turning on the Philly too thick for me today. <laughs> well, dad was from Philly. My mom was from the coal mining region. And yeah. uh, I think I, my husband says I say water like a Philadelphian. So. Well. My, all my friends that I know that are from Philly are tough as steel, and you're one of them now. So we'll have you on the show again. You've brought up so many issues to talk about in a half hour, but great to have you on the show. If you could fly a banner over America, my trick question is, what would it say? Wow. Um, the banner would say, want to pay less and get more for health care? Question mark. Go to free2care.org. And it has to be free, the number two, and then care.org. And then when you get to that site, you can go right on the very page, the landing page. You can download the white paper, and um, they should be able to read that paper. It's in pretty good, you know, easy to understand English. It's, it is long, but we're not going to be able to fix healthcare in one page. And, uh, and then you should take that, that paper to your congressman and say, do all of this or you're going to get fired. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you again. We'll have another show for sure. There's, again, we just really scratched the surface today. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much.
Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.